Corinthians 15, the verses 50 to 58. And we'll be reading this famous passage in connection with the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 16, which speaks about the death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. First Corinthians 15, the verses 50 to 58. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The Word of God. Let us now sing in response to hearing the Word and in preparation for the reading of the Catechism from Psalm 13. Psalm 13, verses 1, 2, and 3. Today we will be looking at this scripture passage that's before us through the lens of Lord's Day 16. Lord's Day 16, which you'll be able to find on page 530 of your book of praise. Why was it necessary for Christ to humble himself even unto death? Because of the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made in no other way than by the death of the Son of God. Why was he buried? His burial testified that he had really died. Since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? Our death is not a payment for our sins, but it puts an end to sin and is an entrance into eternal life. What further benefit do we receive from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross? Through Christ's death, our old nature is crucified, put to death, and buried with him, so that the evil desires of the flesh may no longer reign in us, but that we may offer ourselves to him as a sacrifice of thankfulness. Why is there added he descended into hell? In my greatest sorrows and temptations, I may be assured and comforted that my Lord Jesus Christ, by his unspeakable anguish, pain, terror, and agony, which he endured throughout all his sufferings, but especially on the cross, has delivered me from the anguish and torment of hell. So far. 
beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What do you expect to happen to you after you die? I feel like we're mostly young people here. The majority of the people here before us are young people. And the average church of this of the average age of this church, pardon me, the average age of this church seems to be quite young. So chances are as a whole we generally don't think about death very much. It's just not something that sits in the forefront of our minds. But let me read this parable from Jesus to you for a moment. Luke 12, verses 16 to 20. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I'll pull down my barns and build greater ones. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? What's the moral of this parable? Christ lays that out for us in verse 21 of this chapter. He says, Such is the person who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. To avoid the thought of death and to avoid the thought of facing God is a grave mistake. To make life, this life in particular, your only focus is an even greater mistake. You know, there are very few places in which God directly calls someone a fool in the Bible. But the person who takes on this kind of an attitude towards life, laying up treasure for himself or herself here on earth, and making getting comfortable in this life the only goal, not giving a thought to eternal things, that falls under this umbrella. And God himself calls such a person a fool. Thankfully, our catechism doesn't give us the opportunity to take such a non-reflective attitude towards life. Its very nature as a document that goes through the Apostles' Creed, the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer, makes it very difficult for you to go through a week without reflecting on eternal things. And the Apostles' Creed here today in particular is helpful. It gives us the opportunity to slow down and to reflect. How am I going to face death? If you could turn to our passage again, we'll see this as we examine 1 Corinthians 15, the verses 50 to 58, under the following theme and points. Facing death in the death of Christ. And we'll see, first of all, the satisfaction for sins, and secondly, a gateway to new life. The opening words of our passage don't seem to bode too well for us, do they? We read in verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. In other translations, you'll find it written here, nor does 
corruption inherits incorruption. So what is this corruption or this perishability that they are talking about? Is it simply the corruption of the body or is there more to it? There is a Greek philosopher named Plato who lived four centuries before Christ. He was a huge influence on the Greek philosophy in all the centuries that followed. And he actually continues to be a huge influence on a lot of our thinkers today. One of his arguments was that the body is the prison house of the soul. You boys and girls can think of the picture of one of these old prisons with dirty walls and gray stones stretching up to a tiny window that's out of reach. This Greek man, Plato, said that your soul is like a prisoner in a jail cell and it can't wait to be let go. It can't wait to escape and not be tied to the aches and pains and the limits that come with being human. But that's not the way that God talks about the body, is it? What did he say, after all, when he created the world? What did he say after he created humans? Genesis 1, verse 31. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. But though we know that everything was created good, we recognize that it didn't stay that way. Certainly the body didn't become the prison house of the soul, but something did change. And that something was the fall into sin. Adam and Eve turned against God. And in turning against God, corruption entered into the world. The Greek word here that is perishable in our translation here today, or corruption in other translations, it means a few different things. In some situations, it means the the breakdown of things. So decay, things running down, entropy. It can also mean the ruination of a person through an immoral act. It can mean inward depravity in the third case. And in some cases, it can mean all of those things coming together to describe the total destruction of something. As a fourth option that's laid out in the dictionary, this is the one that it seems it most closely mirrors in Paul's use of it today. Everything being broken down, body, mind, and spirit, everything being plunged into darkness. Everything about man has been corrupted by the fall into sin, and all of creation has been plunged into ruin following after him. For man, the corruption of his body, death entering into his body, became a sign of sin's control. You'll notice that wherever you find the words sinful nature in more modern translations of the Bible, you'll see that many traditional translations, they translate the Greek literally there as being the flesh. They don't say the sinful nature, but they say the flesh. Being in the flesh became a picture of being caught by lust, by sinful passions, by every sinful action. It became a picture of everything that represented the fall. This is a problem. Because mankind corrupted in this way, 
and under the control of sin, cannot come into the presence of God. Consider in the Old Testament where God revealed Himself on top of Mount Sinai in fire and clouds and storm. The Israelites were to build a fence around the mountain to keep the animals and people off the mountain in case they were to touch the mountain and die. Throughout the Old Testament, God mostly appeared to His people in the temple and the tabernacle. He was everywhere, but He appeared to them there in a special way. And because of this, even the high priest feared to come into that part of the temple where God made Himself explicitly known into the most holy place on the Day of Atonement where He was called to come once a year. He feared that because He would have the potential of coming face to face with the presence of God. What if His purification was done improperly? One glimpse of the Lord would have sealed his doom. Why? As one theologian wrote, because a sinful high priest could not encounter the unmediated presence of God without being destroyed. The holiness of God is no joke. It is consuming, glorious, brilliant, undoing, crushing, overwhelming, and terrifying. Truly understanding the holiness of God produces a deep fear of the Lord within us. When Isaiah saw just the train of God's robe in Isaiah 6, he immediately began calling down divine curses upon himself. In essence, he called for God's wrath to be poured out on him because he was a sinful man. He knew that the moment God encountered sin, he was morally obligated to obliterate it. Without a mediator, sinful flesh cannot enter into the presence of God. Because He is perfect and He is holy. His justice requires that sin committed against His Most High Majesty be punished. Romans 6 verse 23, the wages of sin is death. Humanity cannot enter into the presence of God because justice is part of the essence of God. Justice is who He is along with love and holiness and perfection and goodness. And so, for entering into His presence, payment must be made. But if we are to see the body as just a prison house of the soul, then being released from this body, if it's just corrupted flesh that contains it, then being released from this body should be okay, right? If sinful flesh is the problem, then why don't we rid ourselves of flesh? Unfortunately, it's not as simple as that. Because we are corrupted down to our very core. And this is something that men like Martin Luther came to understand around the time of the Reformation. Martin Luther was somebody who, before he understood the Bible properly, he had this view of the body being something impure, being something that needed to be beaten and broken down in order to cause it to submit. And so he would take a whip, and as was more common for those people for for monks back in the day, he would beat himself as penance to try 
force his body into that kind of submission. And he would even beat himself until at one point he was unconscious. But the problem is that we are corrupted down to our very core. Our flesh, with its weaknesses and its temptations and its tendency to wear down and die, might, become a, might be a symbol of our fallen nature, but it's not the only fallen part of us. It's not like we have good souls trapped in evil bodies that are out of our control. We are corrupted by sin, body, and soul. This is why Jesus spoke of hell as the second death so often here on His time on earth. He spoke about it. He spoke about men being thrown, body and soul, into the darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's a spiritual corruption that goes even beyond the physical. And so when Paul writes in our passage today, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, he's not just writing about the physical. He's using an age-old biblical picture that represents a spiritual reality. Humanity was broken, sinful, and corrupt after the fall. And corruption does not inherit incorruption. The perishable does not inherit the imperishable. And herein lies the mystery that Paul writes about. The truth of our one day standing before God is undeniable. God Himself spoke of this through Job many years ago when Job wrote in chapter 19, verse 26, After my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. But how is that going to be possible? How can sinful flesh, how can mankind who is corrupted, who is broken down, come into the presence of God? And all of us here today recognize some aspect of this brokenness. All of us recognize here today that we are sinful. That our relationship with God is not perfect as it should be. And that our relationship with those around us is not perfect as it should be. Tension arises between husbands and wives. Tensions arise between parents and children. Parents exasperate their children. Children are rebellious to their, to their parents. Children talk back to teachers at school. You boys and girls will, some of you, will sometimes bully each other at school. We can see that there is brokenness in this world. How is it possible that we who recognize our sins and weakness, our brokenness and our wickedness, that we can come before this holy, righteous, and pure God? Well, the answer comes in the very words that Job himself had spoken moments before. He said, in my flesh I shall see God. There he writes, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall at last stand upon the earth. 
Paul, in our passage today, points in that very same direction. We have a Redeemer. We have a Savior who is spotless, who is blameless, who was fully man and shared in the brokenness and sorrow and shame that being human lends itself to. And yet He did it without sin. He was unique among the human race. He shared in our flesh. And the very thing that had come to symbolize the weakness, the frailty of humanity, our flesh, this became an avenue for Him to show His true power. Sharing in our flesh and blood. Taking the totality of human nature upon Himself. Yet being without sin. Christ was able to be that mysterious Redeemer. Prophesied so many years before. And the mystery of how He would be able to accomplish this came through His very nature. Not only was He true man, but He was true God. In this, Christ was able to make satisfaction, full satisfaction for our sins. In His divine nature, He was able to bear the weight of the wrath of God that should have fallen on you and on me. And because of Him, we no longer have to fear entering into the presence of God. The perishable cannot inherit the imperishable. The corruptible cannot inherit incorruptibility. The corruptible cannot even enter into the presence of God. And yet, because of Jesus Christ, the way is opened. We can say with the beautiful words of our catechism, He has fully paid for all my sins and has set me free from all the power of the devil. And in the words of our passage today, where, O death, is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The wages of sin is death. And we feel the consequences of sin woven into us. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. By His death, He has destroyed the power of death. He has destroyed the fact that our dying body and soul, that separation that would have stood between us and God, has been removed. By His death, He destroyed the power of death. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this brings us to our second point. having saved us from the power of death and turned it into a gateway into eternal life instead of a gateway into the second death for us. There still remains a problem. Our flesh is corrupted by the effects of sin. We have death woven into our very DNA. There is a clock that started that the the moment we are conceived, ticking down the seconds until the day of our death. What are we to make of this? The Apostle Paul is right in that though our flesh is corrupted by the effects of skin, our sin, we're spiritually washed clean in Christ. He made satisfaction for our sins. But what does that do if we can't live in the peace that He has bought for us? 
What good does it do if our bodies are twisted and broken, if our bodies wear down and our biological clocks give up on us? Ecclesiastes 12, when the years draw near in which we say, I have no pleasure in them, when our limbs begin to tremble and our eyes become dim, when we rise at the sound of birds because we are unable to sleep, and our bones become so brittle that even the smallest of heights becomes something to be feared. When the weight of all the years presses in. It's in these times when the words death is but an entrance to eternal life hit home all the more for us. But we can take comfort in the added benefit that Jesus Christ has gained for us. There will be a day when our bodies will be raised new once again. In those times, the words of Job become all the more marvelous when he says, After my skin has been destroyed, this I know that in my flesh I shall see God. If there was any doubt as to what he means, he says, Whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. How my heart yearns within me. It will be our flesh that is raised. It will be our bodies that are put together again. But they will be transformed. And herein lies the mystery. How is this to work? This we don't know. Yet looking forward to that final day, we are told it will be true. We will have our own bodies and our very own eyes will gaze on the Lord Himself. We will not fear that our death is the end, causing us to slip into a nothingness, an eternal dark sleep. Nor will we have to worry that our personalities will somehow disappear as our bodies disintegrate, that our individual nature somehow vanishes into nothing. Nor will we have to fear that we'll be completely destroyed simply by coming into the presence of God because of the fact that this corruption is woven into our flesh. Rather, we can look forward to the words, with the words of Paul. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. The dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. In Christ. And because of Christ, we will be transformed. And that is how we will face eternity. These bodies which are truly ours will be glorified and made perfect. Verse 53, for this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. For eternal living with the Lord, this is a necessity, but it's also a certainty. All of the things which wore down our bodies will be taken away. The effects of the passage of time will be wiped out. But more than that, the consequences of the corruption of sin will be removed. Sin which has so infected every aspect of our bodies down to our very DNA will be taken away. No more twisted limbs. No more mental illness. No more anxiety. No more depression. No more arthritis. 
No more slipped discs. No more cancer. No more genetic illnesses or problems. All of the effects of sin wiped away. All the little bits of death invading our lives through as many gaps in the wall as possible down to our very DNA will be gone. Verse 54, when the perishable or the corruptible puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. This is what lies ahead for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. This is what lies beyond the gateway of death. This is what lies beyond the entrance into eternal life. Because this is what Christ has bought for those who believe in Him. He's freed us from the condemnation of the law. He has brought us before the righteous judge. God in heaven Himself has declared us clean. God has given us the victory through Jesus Christ. So in light of all of that, then how ought we to live? Although the gateway to eternal life lies ahead of us, our new life begins now. Today, this very day, Jesus calls you to follow Him. He's brought you from darkness into light. He's brought you from death to life. Our old nature is crucified, put to death, and buried with Him. Yes, we still struggle with the evil desires of the flesh. That will happen but they no longer reign in you. Jesus reigns in you. He is the one who has overcome the temptations of the flesh, the attacks of the devil, and He's overcome death itself. He reigns in you. Have you fallen into sin this past week? Remember these words of 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. But with temptation, He will also make a way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. If you struggle with temptation, or you have fallen again, come to repentance in Christ. In Him, death will not win. In Him, sin will not reign. Run to the shelter that He provides. Genuinely pray for forgiveness. And honestly recommit now, this very day, to living in the new life that He has bought for you. Living for Him. Look to His Word for strength and lean on your brothers and sisters in Christ who are all around you here today. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. Your new life begins now. It began the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your only Savior. In the words of the final, passage, final verse of our passage in 1 Corinthians 15, Therefore, my beloved brethren, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, 
always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Our struggle is not in vain. Because sin and death, spiritual death, will not be able to have that final victory. Jesus Christ has already won that final victory. And He who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. And so stand firm as you go out into this week. Stand firm on these promises that Jesus Christ has laid out for you. Fix your eyes on Christ and follow Him. Amen.